2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 15. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all the others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as I said, uh, I am at Stonebridge Church, and I'll share a little bit about my family in a minute. As I was preparing for this sermon, uh, my family and I was on vacation last week, and so I tried to get a jump on this sermon and prepare two weeks ahead of time. And uh, I was going to preach on John, uh, the, the woman at the well, but it sounds like you heard that last week from Roger, and it's probably a lot better than what I could have done. So uh, I, I changed at the last minute, and uh, we'll see how this goes. Uh, I'm going to talk this morning about something that pastors love talking about. Money. Oh boy. But it's better that a guest preacher, right, talks to you about generosity and tithing than, than your, your actual pastor, right? Well, I wanted to focus on this this morning because, North Cross, you, you are at a, at, a, at a change point. You are at a turning point where you can create and be a people who lives into generosity that we see echoed in the scriptures, that we see echoed in the first and second century church that turned their cities upside down, that had a ripple effect that went out from their generosity. I have uh, two boys, a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old, and so you can imagine uh, they bicker and fight and and, and argue and wrestle and on vacation. I don't know how many times I said, please don't wrestle on the sofa bed. It's not ours. We would have to pay for a replacement if you broke it. But I can remember when they were younger, we would, where we live, uh, we live up in Davidson, real close to Roosevelt Wilson Park. So if you know that park in Davidson that has a little pond, we would regularly, to pass time when they were younger, uh, just go down there to just kill time, right? If you have little ones, you understand the days are long, but the years are short. If you've had kids, right, that uh, the days feel forever, uh, but the years go by like that, right? So we would pass time by just throwing rocks into the pond. The boys would, would run to a rock pile, grab one, run back to the water, and I was always worried that their little legs wouldn't stop in time. Uh, but they would just continue to throw rocks in the water. And you think, I wonder how many, time, how many rocks have been thrown into the water, and yet it hasn't filled up yet. But what they loved to see was obviously the splash, but then the ripple effect that would come out of that. The ripple that would echo from that first point of entry. And what would happen when that would just begin to go and it would make its way across the pond, across the lake. And they would have such joy in seeing the effect 
of that little rock that they threw. When the New Testament talks about our generosity and talks about our money, it talks about it in that same way. That even the smallest little pebble can have a ripple effect that goes out and reaches parts of the world that you may never get to see and know this side of heaven. So today I want to talk about the passage where, where Paul challenges the church to step in and really kind of sets this vision, sets this idea that when we are captivated by God's grace, we can be free to be creative about his generosity. See, when we're captivated by who our God is, we realize that what we have is really his to give anyway. When we're amazed by who he is, it frees us to be generous. This all flows out of a heart of gratitude, a heart of contentment, a heart of realizing whose you are. So in our passage today, you get to see the fact that generosity played out and multiplied out. It magnifies God's glory. It magnifies his generosity. And it causes praise and worship in the hearts of people around you. North Cross, you have the opportunity to give in a way that causes praise to happen in this room and in the neighborhoods that God has planted you in. You have opportunity to bring about glory to God through your generosity to this little part of the bride of Christ. So that's what we're going to delve into. We'll delve into that passage today, but let me begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, in these next few moments, may you do the work that your word promises to do. May you mold us. May you train us. May you equip us to live as you lived, Christ. To serve as you served. To love as you loved. To give as you gave. May we lay down every distraction this morning. May we let down our guard, our walls, our judgments. May you do the work on the blind spots in my own life. Wherever I need conviction, Lord, let me not run from it today. And yet, Lord, even if I do, may I see that your value of me, your love of me does not wane because of the perfect life of Jesus. I pray all this through the saving name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Let me give you a little background pass, uh, to this passage today. Paul wrote this letter most likely around 56 A.D., most likely around that time period, and he was writing to the Corinthian church, and this actually is the third uh, letter to the Corinthian church. We don't have the first one, uh, so our one is actually two, and two is actually three. But it was written around this time where he was traveling the Mediterranean area, and he was writing to the churches scattered across the area to care for and be generous to the church that was gathered in Jerusalem. He was calling the church to care for the ministries and the work that they were doing in the Jerusalem church back in the home city. Now, I add at this point, if, if you're anything like me, you can get a little cynical or jaded, right, when we talk about money or generosity or stewardship. But here's the thing. 
it's all over the New Testament. It's all over the, the early church writings. In fact, it is one of the top three topics that Jesus talked about in the Gospels because he knows our hearts. He knows we can sing, I believe, and we can mentally assent to those statements, but our hearts can be so attached to things, to money, to stuff, to relationships, good things, but not ultimate things. Jesus knew our hearts. He knew how quickly and easily we can make idols of things. So Paul is appealing to the Corinthian church to extend their resources in generosity to the church in Jerusalem. And he lays out his point by saying that your generosity can multiply and magnify God's generosity and his glory, as I said earlier. It can cause the overflowing, the multiplying of praise to God. So he gives this agrarian example, if you're following along in your Bible, is that we, we get this. We understand this concept, right? If I plant five tomato seeds, I should not expect 5,000 tomatoes on the vine, right? Did you know that? That's, you're not going to get that many, right? We can understand this reaping and sowing concept, which was a common, again, example used by Christ in the early church to talk about that our generosity, we will reap what we sow, now this can obviously be where it gets warped. You might be familiar with the prosperity gospel movement. And I describe that often as an over-realized eschatology. Because we are told about riches and blessings, treasures. But we're told they're going to be there, not here. The riches consistent in this life mean more and more grace, more and more gratitude, more and more contentment, more and more joy, more and more gladness, even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of suffering. Those are the riches that are promised to us this side of heaven. See, Paul is really illustrating the image of the ripple effect, the image of generosity can have on our hearts and on the hearts of others. There's an image that I, that I put together for this that I, I think, did you get? You did. There it is. So uh, often when I think about generosity in this way, that, that when we are in our hearts resting in the contentment of who God is and what he has for us, we can then act in generosity. And generosity then in, can in turn cause our hearts to rest in contentment. It's the cyclical effect that we see within Scripture. And this is what Paul is touching on. In fact, verse seven, he's, in verse 7, he's talking about the, the top part of the circle, our hearts. The cheerful giver, that's a heart thing. He's diving and echoing the words of Christ, diving into the heart of of the matter. Cheerful there, another word for it means exhilarating. See, Christ wants your heart. He calls your heart. He's after that. Perhaps you're familiar with the, the, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, right? This is one of Jesus' uh, famous sermons that we have recorded. And in verses 21 through 30, he, takes, he talks about murder and adultery. 
All right, so Jesus says, great. You haven't physically killed anyone. You're doing great. He doesn't say that. He goes after the heart. Have you hated someone in your heart? He says, great, you haven't committed adultery. You haven't cheated on your spouse. But have you in your heart? He's not just after your actions. He's after your heart. Now, do you hear that echo in the words of Paul? Not reluctantly or under compulsion, but God loves a cheerful giver. However, don't then misinterpret the text or try and self-justify the text to say, well, if my heart's not in it, then I don't need to. There's this story about Benjamin Franklin that I like to tell, and then I turn his name, you know, don't, don't Franklin the text. There's uh, this story that he tells about in his journal where uh, for a season of his life, he was a vegetarian, and he finds himself on a fishing boat, and they're catching cod, and as they're catching cod, they, they begin to cook it for lunch, and he's like, man, that smells really good, but I'm a vegetarian, and so I don't eat that. And he writes about how as they're cooking it, he sees that the cod have eaten smaller fish. And well, I guess if the cod can eat smaller fish than I can eat the cod, there we go. I can enjoy the cod for lunch. He justified to get to where he wanted to go. And we have to be careful that it's very easy for us to do the same with a text like this. Well, it's not cheerful. So I'm not going to give it. Think about Matthew 5 and Jesus' sermon. If the argument was, well, if it was, I shouldn't give until my heart is in it, then, well, I, I guess if my heart's not in love with my wife, then it's okay to not be faithful to her. If, if I really don't like that person, it's okay for me to physically harm them. We know that's absurd. We understand what Jesus is doing. Paul is echoing those same words here. This is not an either-or argument he's laying out. It's a both-and argument. The top of the circle rightly so affects the bottom and it influences the top. See, verse 13 gets at this a little bit. He sees that in verse 13 says, because of the service which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession. There are times when obedience accompanies confession and times when confession accompanies obedience. Action and word, word and action. So within you, there's this circle that affects generosity, but then it ripples out from there. It goes further from there. It multiplies from there, and it has an impact that he gets at in verses 11b, 12, and 13. It talks about the impact of your generosity is twofold. First, needs are being met. Physical needs are being met within the church community and with the city around them in Jerusalem. But secondly, there's a multiplication of praise. There's a multiplication of gratitude, of thanks, of joy and cheerfulness that comes from your generosity. So first, needs are being met. As I said, the context, we knew what was happening uh, in Jerusalem uh, in 56 AD is when, he, again, he wrote this. And a few years earlier in Jerusalem, there was a famine that happened. And so the, the church was, 
was struggling to put together resources in order to help anybody and everybody within the city. And so Paul understood that they're still dealing with the financial ripple effects, the food ripple effects of the famine, and they're asking the churches, hey, we, we need your support to do this. See, the church out of her generosity meets the needs of, yes, the local church, but even larger, the city within which you find yourselves. Ministry is fueled by your generosity. It's empowered. It's impassioned. I would imagine, North Cross, your aim is not to maintain the status quo. I would imagine your heart is that more people would know the amazing grace of who Jesus is. And yes, we have to share that verbally, but it's also shared with, with others physically. It's shared with others through our generosity often. I believe we need to catch the vision of what could be. Again, my aim is not to shame or guilt anyone in this room because, again, it's when we're captivated by how generous and gracious our God is, it pours out in who we are. I want to give you a picture of what could be. From recent stats, if believers in America gave 10%, there would be an additional 130 to 165 billion dollars that the church could use. That's B with a billion. And I had a conversation with one person who said, well, yeah, but would, would the church know what to do with it when they got it? Paul doesn't deal with that. Through the guidance of the Spirit and the leadership and the church, we will prayerfully go and and, and, and do ministry within the city and the community and in the world. One writer laid out, and this is obviously hard to speculate, and so it's uh, generalities, but to get the picture, it's estimated that $25 billion could relieve global hunger, starvation, and death from preventable diseases in five years. $12 billion to eliminate illiteracy in five years. 15 billion to solve the world's water and sanitation issues. We've not even cracked 100 billion yet. The ripple effect of the church, what could it be if we were captivated by the generosity with which God has given us, the grace that he's given us, and pour that out? In the end, like Paul says, it's between you and him between your Lord and your heart. So first we see that Paul lays out needs are being met in the church and in the community. But we also see that there's a multiplication of praise and thanks and glory being given. Have you ever been the recipient of an unexpected gift? I don't know, kids, you have, right? Christmas. Well, you kind of expect that, I guess. But if parents are really good, they don't, you don't know what you're getting, Right? I have a box in my office of uh, notes and encouragement cards um, that I've saved over the years that have shown up at the right time. You, you know the power words of encouragement can be. You know the power that an unexpected gift can be. I have memories of growing up where my uh, parents would 
sit us down around the table. And I, I don't remember doing it often, but there were a few moments where my dad had lost his job, and, and I, I remember it was around those times where they put the bills in the middle of the table, and we would pray over the bills because we didn't know how they were going to be paid. Of course, I, you know, as a young kid was like, yeah, okay, fine, I'll sit and we'll pray. But I look back now, and even hearing my mom and dad talk about God showed up. Prayers were answered. Money showed up to pay for the bills during these seasons. But here's what we need to realize. It was done through other believers who were listening to those around them and listening to the whispers of the Spirit. The more you commune with Christ, the more you spend time in prayer and His Word, the more you're able to hear the whispers of the Spirit and maybe be for a family either here or around you that you know is struggling. And even a small rock, a small pebble, would have a huge impact in their family. Because you know what it did for us? It filled us with thanksgiving. It filled us with praise. It filled us with glory to God. And overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. But it led to that next ripple. Because my parents realized they could be for someone else what someone was for them. You can be the start of a ripple. Most likely, you're somewhere in that circle where you can continue on the ripple. Paul gets at this earlier in chapter 8, verses 13 through 15. He says, At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in your need, their plenty will supply. He understands the heart and the ripple effect that can come, the praise and the glory that can come when we live generously. It was this posture, this attitude, that turned the first century upside down. This is, this is what turned the world upside down. Understanding the grace that Christ had, the generosity that he showed in his life and death and resurrection, and the church then goes out and lives it. There's one letter that is, was written. It's called the Epistle of Diogenes. It was written about 130 to 140 A.D., uh, and, and I'll wrap up with this. Well, no author is given or writer is given. Most believe that it was written to the Diogenes, who was the tutor of Marcus Aurelius, the emperor. Uh, and we, we're not, so we're not given any author, but what we're given, we understand in the Greek syntax and the structure that it was probably somebody who spent a lot of time with John. The way they wrote was very John-like. But the author opens with acknowledging that, that this, this official high up, this tutor high up in the Roman Empire was curious about these Christians, curious about these people. He saw something different, and so he was interested in learning more about Christian worship and what do they believe and how do they practice what they, what they say that they uh, believe and, and how are they able to uh, look, look down on earth and, and, and not fear death and despise death. And he, he's really interested even more in why now? 
Why on the, the, the world's stage of history did these, this group show up now in history? And I'm not, I'm not going to read the letter to you. You're welcome to, to look it up. But there are a few things that he talks about that it says this is what makes them different. And this is really what turned the, the, the first two centuries upside down, which led to Constantine in that era. Talked about first, they were a people who realized that their citizenship was not determined by their place of birth. That their ultimate allegiance lied somewhere else. And so that's why they were able to love and welcome anybody. We have other letters that talk about, well, they love our people better than we do because in the first century, Romans took care of Romans, Greek took care of, Greeks took care of Greek, and so forth, but they really didn't take care of each other. And then the Christian showman says, doesn't matter. You're welcome here. Not only that, they were a people who cared for all of life from birth to, to tomb. They, were, uh, they valued and, and lived a different sexual ethic. Said they, the line is they, they shared a common table, but not a common bed. Because again, in the first century, to share a table was an act of acceptance, an act of welcoming. And so that, to the first century, was like, wait, they share their table? And it says that they were so generous that their poor helped make others rich. And not rich in the financial sense, but helped meet needs. And so you see this first rock thrown by Christ showing up, living and giving generously to the church who couldn't help then ripple out, to multiply out. North Cross, the world is not going to be changed by our politic. It's going to be changed by our love and our generosity that confuses the world around us, that astounds the world around us. And in the early church, you see a people captivated by his grace and intentional about their community and their communities around them and committed to a generosity that turned the world upside down. May we be so captivated by his grace that on Monday we look and live different. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're told in the very prayer that Jesus, you prayed for us that we may be one, that the world will know the Father sent the Son by our unity. And Lord, even in the beginning of that prayer, Jesus, your prayer was that God would glorify you so that in turn you may glorify the Father. Glory and praise is multiplied and magnified as it is given in return to you, Father. Lord, may we be a people who lives into that, who is so captivated by how amazing you are, God, that we can't help but be generous with our words with our lives, with our finances and stuff, that the world would see how amazing our God is. In your name we pray. Amen.